This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Shylin didn't know the difference between a Presbyterian and a Pescatarian when he stepped into historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. It hurt his throat to sing the hymns. He had been catechized by hip-hop to believe that Islam is a better and cooler choice than Christianity, that Christianity is the white man's religion. But Shai had been transformed by the power of the gospel. None of these cultural differences in music and dress mattered compared to the unity in the crucified and risen Christ. And he became a key figure in the growing movement of Christian hip-hop, musically like Wu-Tang Clan, but lyrically like Billy Graham. The style was appealing, but the crowd seemed more excited about Jesus than anything else. He's convinced that we'll look back one day on this era between 2002 and 2012 as a revival, much like the Jesus movement of the late 1960s and early 70s. So, what happened in 2012? Well, ethnic differences began to reemerge with the shooting death of Trayvon Martin. And as Shai writes in his new book, The New Reformation, Finding Hope in the Fight for Ethnic Unity, published by Moody, the subsequent high-profile shooting deaths of black men and women did not surprise many African Americans. His sense as a 16-year-old, gathered from family and friends, was that police beat up black people all the time. But Christian hip-hop began to decline when white and black Christians realized they did not see these incidents the same way. He writes this, quote, White Christians were happy to have us as long as we just rapped about the gospel and kept quiet about the things we talk about among ourselves all the time that deeply affect us. But the moment we expressed the pain we felt about racial injustice, many white Christians were quick to dismiss us, rebuke us, or silently ignore us, end quote. Even so, Shai's book points to hope for ethnic unity. It's a book that cuts through the anger, sarcasm, unforgiveness, and mockery that characterize much Christian discourse today on this sensitive subject. He points us toward a better way of humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Now, apart from massive revival, we may not expect the world to overcome these divisions, but in the church— through the power of the gospel, we can strive for unity and a clear and compelling witness to the world. So thank you, Shai, for joining me on this episode of Gospel Bound. Thanks for having me, Colin. Appreciate it. Right off the bat, Shai, why do you think we need a new Reformation? Well, when, when I speak of a new Reformation, I'm not saying that the, that the doctrine needs to change. So when we look back at the Reformation, we see that it was a, a recovery of essential truths. You know, you think about the five solas, we're saved by 
grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, based on the scripture alone. Uh, those things are essential. Those are landmarks, ancient landmarks that should not be moved. When I speak of a new reformation, I'm talking more about the, the people who are included in the conversation uh, con- con- concerning reformed theology. Um, and and so the, the, when I speak of a new reformation, I'm speaking about the, the diversity of, of God's church, um, included in our understanding and articulation of reformed theology. Now, there are so many insights in this book, so many things that I think are going to be beneficial to people. And one of the most helpful I found, um, I, do a lot of historical reading and study on this subject, but I hadn't quite thought about it the way that you frame it here. You, you, uh, I would like to mo- hear more from you about this hypothesis. You write this, quote, Could it be that Christians on the low end, both in Europe and America, didn't have the means, numbers, or resources to meaningfully engage and challenge the Christian elites on what it looks like to apply the gospel in the realm of oppression and justice toward the poor? End quote. Could you expand on that for us? Well, one of the things that I point out in in the book is is how the Reformation was really aided by the invention of the printing press around the same time, uh, and that's what helped to to spread the the Reformation throughout Europe. And uh, one one thing we need to consider is that the the literacy rates back then were extremely low. So. Um, many historians estimate that it was less than 10% of the entire European population that was literate. And so, so literacy was, was tied to class. And so uh, at that time, it was, it was wealth and education that were the primary determinants of, of literacy. Uh, and so because of that, the, the many who were, if, if, if you were, if you were poor, uh, you were generally not literate. Uh, and so uh, the theory that, that I mentioned in the book, I call it the low end theory, which is basically saying that, that the poor were, were on the, were at a disadvantage when it, when it came to interacting with uh, the Bible and the, the writings that were disseminated through the culture at the time. Um, and so um, the, the primary exchange of ideas at that time, it was happening amongst the, the literate. Um, and, and so, you know, later on, when we think about uh, even in America with the descendants of the Reformation, we know that it was uh, against the law for a slave to even be taught how to read. Um, and, and so for, for many, many years, uh, the, the oppressed, uh, the poor, the illiterate um, were uh, uninvolved by and large, you have you have your exceptions, the, the John Bunyans of the world, but uh, but by and large, uh, the poor were kind of left out of the the um, articulation of of reformed theology, and so so the the low end theory, and it's really just it's a series of questions asking if um, if this has contributed to the um, uh, the problem of um, of the, the um, in in the, I guess historically in reform circles, the the problem of uh, addressing the concerns of the poor and the oppressed. There's a book I read a few years ago called uh, Factfulness by Hans Rosling, and one of the things he argues in that book is that 
more than one thing can be true at the same time. It can be the case that things are getting better and yet that there's still a long way to go. So one thing I've covered in this podcast before is how Protestantism fueled a dramatic increase in literacy, which it did. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, literacy rates overall remained low compared mm-hmm. to our own day, um, certainly in those early years, and especially among poor and marginalized and oppressed people. So those things can both be true at the same time. Now let's put a little bit more of a kind of a point on this. Is there something about Reformed theology in particular that makes its adherence blind to the issue of racial injustice? I don't believe so. Um, within the again, within the doctrine itself, I, I don't think that there's a um, anything inherent in the doctrine that produces uh, blind spots. Um, I, I believe it's it's more a function of, of of who who makes up the the community at the time, um, and so you know each just as we as individuals have blind spots, uh, communities have blind spots as well. Uh, and so it, it, it really is a, a matter of uh, believers from other uh, backgrounds, whether it be socioeconomically or, or ethnically, um, that can come into uh, a setting and, uh, and point out, make, make observations that whatever the majority culture is at, at, at the, the particular time, um, we're, we're blind to. Um, and, and so this is a, an argument for the importance of, of diversity. Um, and, you know, I think about in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, the, the discussion of the body and, and how there are many different parts and, and how the, the different body parts uh, need each other. Um, and, and so if you have a community that, uh, generally speaking, is made up of uh, kind of a, a particular body part, it's going to, to suffer uh, with, without the, uh, the other parts coming into play. One reason Shai just resonated so much with this book is because you seem to ask a lot of the questions underneath the questions that she would be asking. I just loved the curiosity that you display. One thing I've observed writing and talking about Reformed theology over these years, including starting with you more than a decade ago, now, almost 15 years ago now, actually, um, one of the things that I just remember thinking is that this growing Reformed theology movement requires a, it requires a pre, I mean, it has a prerequisite of people who are interested in theology at some level and are interested in that level of discourse. Well, that's a, that's not a huge group of people in the grand scheme of things. And it doesn't matter what ethnicity that is. So whatever trends that we're looking at here are going to be, overrepresented among certain kinds of people in terms of education level or access or physical location, uh, urban versus rural, all kinds of different dynamics like that. Not to mention the role that the internet played in being able to come at a particular time, much like the Reformation did with the printing press. And so I just resonated so much with how you factor in a lot of these other things. And I also appreciate your perspective here um, through a lot of the controversies we've seen in the the last number of years about precious Puritans and things like that. There's a quote here from the book. You say, I'm not going to blame Reformation teaching for the sin of Martin Luther or Jonathan Edwards any more than I would blame the teachings of the New Testament 
when I disobey God. And that's one thing that's come up a lot for me is when you consider how many of us fall short all the time of Jesus's teaching, and yet it's not Jesus's fault. There is a difference between the belief itself and the application thereof. Now, here's another point in the book that I completely agree with, but I guess I want to know from you why it's not the case, why we're struggling to do this as Christians. You write this, if we are going to make any progress in these discussions, the Bible must have the first and final say on the topic. You know, in our, in our culture today, there are so many voices. Um, you know, it's all about platform and uh, people have all kinds of things to say. And uh, when, we, when we think about the importance of, of biblical exposition and, and biblical clarity, we, we know that, uh, that, that is a, that's a Christian value, but that is not a, a value of our culture. So our culture values sound bites, it, you know, particularly with social media, it values snark <laughs> and sarcasm and, um, and, you know, say something as loud and as bold, you know, we're in the era of the, the hot take. Um, and, and the Bible is just not, it's not a book filled with hot takes. <laughs> um, and, and so it's, it's very important as, as Christians, as we engage this discussion, that we engage it biblically. Um, and I'm, I'm not particularly interested in uh, discussions that are, that, that are not informed by, uh, guided by the Bible, um, because that, that is ultimately our, our standard. And that's where we can, you know, we believe in sola scriptura, that the, the scripture is the, the final authority on, on all issues of, of faith and practice. And, and so as, as a Bible believing Christian, I, I have to believe that, uh, that God's word speaks to these issues and that as Christians, we, we must be guided by it. Uh, got just another question before we dive into some of the more specific biblical supports for your argument in this book. Um, another observation here, you, you say that maybe more white theologians haven't addressed racism because they're removed from people most affected by it. That's a continuation of the arguments that you've been making here already that I've been asking about. But I'm wondering about this. It would actually seem that social media which, as you point out, is we're watching these videos next to ads for skin cream and Doritos. How disorienting that is. It would seem that social media has closed that experience gap of testimonies and videos because now so many of us can see what you and other brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced in various forms over the years. And yet, disagreement seems at some level to actually be getting worse. Mm -hmm. Why might that be the case? I think about what the internet is and social media is good for. And, and, and what it's good for is the dissemination of information. Um, so, um, so I agree with you that um, in some ways uh, we're, we're more informed about particular events and, and things that happen around the world uh, because of how ubiquitous uh, cameras on 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 phones are and um, and and the internet. Um, but while it's good for information, it's it's really bad when it comes to relationships. Um, and so, so I think that as as we've become in some ways more informed, uh, at the same time we've become more relationally distant uh, from each other. Uh, and uh, and I, I think the internet plays a 
a big part in that. Um, and so, you know, if, you know, in, inform, information without uh, the context of, of a relationship is going to, to produce some of the things, the, the bad fruit that we see in terms of um, the lack of charity, um, coldness, um, uh, malice, those, those, those kinds of things. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's just been one of the discouraging things since 2012 is that it's hard to know what to make of the give and take, the good and the bad of social media and internet and those and smartphones and whatnot, because we know that perpetrators have been brought to justice. Um, the dead have been, been properly, I mean, have been avenged you know, by the proper authorities, um, even as you and I talk, that's that's still happening. That's only the case because of some of these technological trends. And yet, I guess that's just typical of technology in general. It gives and it takes away. So it gives us more access to see the problem for ourselves, but at the same time also traumatizes more and somehow also stirs up that much more malice at the same time. Let's take a, a step back and just get back to some some first principles here. And I think, Shai, at this point, we can't really take for granted this question. Why is ethnic diversity important? Ethnic diversity is important because it is embedded into God's plan of redemption. Um, so one, one, one of the things that um, st- struck me as I was uh, researching for the book was was reading through Galatians um, and uh, coming across a passage in in Galatians chapter three where where it speaks about God preaching the gospel or the scripture preaching the gospel to Abraham uh, back in Genesis. So in when when God calls Abraham or Abram uh, in, uh, in 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 the book of Genesis. One, one of the things that we see there is that he says that he's going to make uh, Abram a, a father of, of many nations. And according to Galatians, that is, that is scripture preaching the gospel to Abraham. And so, uh, so ethnic diversity is important because the Lord Jesus died to redeem a people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And, um, and, and, and we, we, we can't be, uh, faithful to the message of the gospel without the uh, the message that uh, God is not only saving Jews, but he's saving Gentiles. Uh, he's saving all kinds of people, all for the glory of Christ. Let's turn the flip side, which I also don't think we can take for granted today. So if that's why ethnic diversity is important, then why is ethnic unity important? Ethnic unity is important because... Jesus died to purchase our unity in him. And when, when we look at John 17, we, we see what was on the Lord Jesus's mind as he faced the cross and the thing that he uh, prays in, in his high priestly prayer. One of the things that he prays is that, is that the church would, would be one in order that the world might believe that the Father sent the Son. And so our, our unity as a church uh, speaks directly um, to the character of, of our God. Uh, and so what we don't want to do is, um, is communicate in any way by the, by the way that we interact with one another that, that our God is divided because he's not. God is one. And 
And so, so Jesus' death um, purchased that that unity for us. And now it's it's up to us to to walk in what He purchased for us at the cross. And uh, we're really building toward the climax of your argument. I I felt as though with the book, you set it up with a lot of your experience, and then you kind of take it back to biblical and theological truth, and then it becomes sort of your call for the church. And one of the hinge points of the book is why the doctrine of justification by faith alone, going back to the Reformation here, is the key to addressing ethnic disunity in the church. Mm-hmm. Go, ahead and, go ahead and tell us why you think that's the case. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm pointing people back to, to the Reformation, the, the recovery of the doctrine of justification, Justification, which which says that we are uh, declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from uh, any of our our works, and um, and 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 that that truth is <laughs> uh, is is just massive, and the, and the implications of it is you know that's something that uh, we're going to I believe we're not like we're going to continue to learn about what that means throughout all <laughs> all eternity uh, because there's so much. So much depth to it, uh, but uh, but when we the the more we the more we understand what God has done for us in Christ through justification, it what it what it should do is is begin to affect how we see both ourselves and and how we see others. So um, so so with with justification, I recognize that um, you know what what I, one, one of the things I learned from justification is that. I am a great sinner and that there is uh, not much that I am incapable of from, uh, from a sin standpoint, uh, which should produce humility. Um, it should keep me from defensiveness. So even when, it, when things like um, you know, so-called racism uh, come up, um, you know, my understanding of, of indwelling sin uh, should make me quick to recognize that I'm like, I'm capable of anything. Um, and so, and I, I need the Lord. And, um, and so, so, so I, I should also be able to apply justification when it comes to my brothers and sisters in Christ. So it should, it should make us quick to, to forgive. Uh, it should make us quick to, um, to reconcile and, um, and, and quick to repent. Um, and so, so one of the things that that I do in the book is just go over just particular areas where um, where justification can can help us as we seek to pursue ethnic unity. You know, Shai, the experience that I had reading the book was at its it's painful at many points. Just understanding what you and others have have been through, um, just thinking about the bad fruit of history of disobedience from so many in the church on these things. And yet in the end, I, I felt hopeful um, because I could sense the power of God prevailing through his word and through the blood of the, of the cross and the triumph of the resurrection. And it seems like it doesn't necessarily matter which side of this debate right now. It just seems like that's not, that's not playing a major role. Um, and I see your book as being able to help us get back to the gospel so that we can move forward together, um, the church. And um, you just go ahead and apply that here. I think we could apply this to a lot of different issues, but go ahead and apply this to voting. 
and what it would mean for us you know, to apply the doctrine of justification by faith alone to how we vote politically in the church. <laughs> He's bringing out the big guns, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I so I'll, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to put you out on the limb here. You, I mean, you say it in the book, but I'll just say, it seems as though we keep adding to salvation by saying, "Yeah, you can be a Christian if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and is raised on the third day, mm-hmm. and if you vote this way." Right. And if you share my view of justice, and if you share this over here, and it just seems to me like we keep adding to the law and therefore to condemnation. But mm-hmm. you put you put it in your words. I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, one one, one of the things that I that I point out in in the book is that um, it's, it's it's a known fact that historically in America, generally speaking, Black Christians and White Christians have voted differently in yeah. in pre- presidential elections, right? And so. So we've heard Christian leaders say things like, if you're a true Christian, you'll vote for fill in the blank. And, and what I mentioned is that the problem with this is that whatever political party or candidate you endorse, you're basically, you're going to be saying that an entire community of believers who vote differently isn't actually saved. And not only is that kind of thinking, it's not only reductionistic, it's not only uncharitable, but it is a distortion of the gospel of justification by faith alone. So that True Christianity is not determined by whether or not a person votes Democratic or Republican. It's, it's, it's determined by whether or not a person has placed their trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and so we must not add to the gospel in this way. And it, this is a keep, keep the main thing the main thing. And I would even add, Shai, that it's not just that white Christians and black Christians have historically voted differently. I would go so far as to argue that the fundamental political divide in American history is between white Christians and black Christians. Mm. Um, that That's the most salient fact of American politics that never changes. Mm. Generally speaking, especially white Christians in the South, because it's a more diverse situation in the North, um, but especially white Christians in the South and black Christians don't vote the same way. And, until we have the eyes to see what, as you pointed out, is a plain historical fact, a plain fact on which all of our political science is based in terms of campaign strategy, I don't see how we're going to make a lot of progress toward unity and toward understanding on from multiple perspectives. I certainly think the burden falls especially with white Christians because of the history and because of some of the ongoing implications there. But there just has to be that careful exploration into the history. Now, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go ahead and, for the listeners, uh, share a couple quotes from you in here. Um, it's just so beautifully written, and the reason I want to share it, I don't normally do this, and I'll have, I'll have three rapid fire questions for you here in the end, but I just think there's, there's no way for me to really otherwise capture this. But these quotes, I don't think shy they could do a better job of explaining my heart you know, this podcast perspective, even if I might say so on behalf of the Gospel Coalition. You write this, it's far easier to dismiss someone as a racist than it is to love them enough to consider their genuine concerns. It takes far less effort to write someone off as a Marxist than it does to pray from the heart that God would comfort them in their grief, even if we can't understand. 
May we as the church be so filled with the spirit that onlookers would be able to discern the mutual affection we have for each other, even when we disagree. Just imagine uh, for everybody listening here, if that's what the world saw in the church, how different that would be and how compelling that would be. And last quote here from you, Shai. Uh, the New Reformation is preaching and speaking out about a biblical view of marriage, a biblical view of ethnic injustice, a biblical view of justice for the unborn, and a biblical view of caring for the poor and marginalized without regard to how the surrounding secular society categorizes those particular particular concerns politically. Mm. Again, just grateful for the book. It's the book we need in this moment. And... Um, I'm glad you've got the guts to write it. <laughs> so, <laughs> final three questions for you, Shai. Where do you find calm in the storm? Yeah, it's ultimately in prayer and 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 going before the Lord, um, casting all of my my cares before Him, knowing that that He cares for me. Um, it, it's uh, the the current environment that we find ourselves in is increasingly volatile it's it's hostile you know one, one of the things that i've wrestled with recently is is, is being misunderstood <laughs> um and in some ways having to be okay with that um not not trying to uh, to fight for uh, my reputation or or how people see me or view me um and and so in many ways i find calm in my local church and my, my wife my family um with uh, people that that know me and and love me and and accept me in spite of all of my my mess um, and and ultimately that that points back to uh, to the Lord who has has fully accepted me and and knows me better than anybody uh, and yet <laughs> amazingly he loves me more than anybody at the same time fully loved and fully known yeah well we all long for ultimately in God and in others. Shai, where do you find good news today? So because of my general <laughs> melancholy, <laughs> pessimistic tendencies, when I, when I look outside of the Bible, it, it's really hard for me to find it. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's keeping my eyes on, on God's word and, uh, and the hope that we have there and, and just, uh, just knowing that the, uh, the story has been written and um, and that uh, the time is coming when God is going to take us all to to be with him and is in, in the in his presence with his fullness of joy and um, pleasures at his right hand, hand forevermore that is yeah. the that's the best news <laughs> imaginable and um, and that's where I find it amen last question shy what's the last great book you've read the last great book that I read I'm actually reading it now, and I'm really oh, okay. <laughs> thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it. Which is uh, "Gentle and Lowly" by uh, yes. by, okay. by Dane Ortland. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a balm to to my soul, and I'm really, really, me and my wife are both both enjoying it. Very good. Again, my guest has been my friend Shai Lin, author of the new book, "The New Reformation." Finding Hope in the Fight for Ethnic Unity, published by Moody. Just so grateful, grateful for this book. And um, there's a lot being published on these topics right now, some of it better than others. And uh, this is the best one I've read so far. 
Thanks, Shai. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold. Thank you.